When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, guys. I'm Amy Wright. Thanks for listening to Insights. My guest this hour is Shannon McNally, who dropped by to chat with me about her upcoming record, The Wayland Sessions, a covers album of Waylon Jennings songs, which she recorded with an all-star band and special guests like Jesse Coulter, Buddy Miller, Rodney Crowell, and Lucas Nelson. McNally's put together an album of classics that challenges our perceptions and assumptions about just what made them classics in the first place, providing a feminine perspective that only a restless and truly creative spirit like hers could conjure. I'll let her tell the story, and I'll check in with you again shortly, right here on Insights. Yeah, Diddy TV, we're excited to have you on today to talk about a tribute to Waylon Jennings. Very exciting. But before we do that, I just wanted to kind of go back a little ways and talk to you a little bit about Long Island and what it was like growing up there and mm-hmm. and how you got into music. And it's always pretty interesting, I find, to, to see how people got to their career path and ended up in music. But what was it like growing up in Long Island? Well, let's see. Long Island, of course, is 120 miles long. It extends straight out from New York City. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's suburban. Um, of course, we are an island, so we have we have the world's most beautiful white sand beaches. We have th- just miles and miles and miles of them. Um, so I really, I grew up on the beach, pretty close to the beach, five minutes from the beach. And... Um, um, you know, uh, it was the 80s, I guess, and uh, um, just norm- normal sort of suburban life, uh, though we had a lot of classic rock radio. Uh, classic rock radio was the mainstay, was the staple. So and in the 80s, classic rock radio s- was really 60s and 70s driven, of course. But we were parents musicians? Were your parents no, musicians? No, not. They were fans. They had a great uh, record collection. And they liked live music. So we would go see live shows a lot. And there were a lot of live music venues. With Jones Beach being the premier one for me as a kid, because you didn't have to be 18 or 21. And you could go all summer long to the concert series, which was extensive. And uh, we had na- I lived five minutes from Nassau Coliseum. Um, so I grew up seeing a lot of shows, big Coliseum shows, you know, Tom Petty and Heartbreakers, Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd, um, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Ziggy Marley, ben, you know, groups like that. When did big, you start playing music? When I was about 12. Well, uh, actually, I started in, music, in school, you know, in, in public school. Like I played the record. I got my first. I instrument was a recorder, like everybody, uh, when I was in the second grade. And then the third grade, I started playing the violin. And I played the violin all the way through uh, college, where I realized I was dramatically unfit for 
collegiate level uh, orchestras. So, um, and I had other things took over by then, but I got a guitar when I was 12 and um, I was off to the races. There was a little guitar shop uh, in the town where I live, Freeport. Uh, free, other, other celebrities from Freeport are Lenny Bruce, Howard Stern from up the street. Um, let's see, uh, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy was from just north. You know, he was from Rose. Those guys were both from Roosevelt. It was just, just one town up. That's a pretty big, extensive list of mega superstars. It, it, it goes on and on. There's actually a lot of them. So, Do you remember anyway. what your first guitar was? Yeah, it was a guild. And it had a, a long neck, an extra long neck. Um, it's an electric guitar. My uncle gave it to me. He also gave me an amp and, uh, and taught me how to play bar chords. Um, he also gave me a J.J. Kale record. Um, and which I just was over the moon about. I just, I didn't know. And then that, that the picture, the app, that was a CD and um, I didn't have a picture of him on it. And I'd never heard of him before and nobody I knew had ever heard of him before. And uh, I, I didn't see, it's, I was wild about that record. And, uh, but I didn't see a picture of him until I was in college. And I didn't know he was still alive. I didn't know there were other J.J. Kale records. It was before the internet, you know, <laughs> just before you could learn a person's entire story in, in, in a Wikipedia page. But um, no, we didn't have anything like that. So it was either radio or it was your album collection that you were listening to. Record stores. Record stores. Yes. Record stores is where you found your, you know, it's where you would go, you know, and you would start hunt out good record stores. And, and I, I follow, I learned a lot. There was a DJ, in New York City, his name was Scott Muni, and he he sort of specialized on the Beatles, and he interviewed John Lennon a bunch, and and um, I mean John Lennon died in 1980, so these were reruns, um, but um, he did a lot of interviews, so I would listen to his show, and they did a lot of interviews, so they'd have Eric Clapton on, and you know, or, or Bonnie Raitt, and they would talk about their influences and I would just take notes and go to the record store and buy those records. There was something really nice about that. I remember going to record stores and I would kind of go with the idea that I was going to buy a specific album. And then when I was, when I got there, I was going to have the, the person who worked at the record store recommend another one based on the album that I had had in my mind to purchase. Yeah. And I I discovered so much music that way just by getting the recommendations of the people who worked at the record stores. Yeah. Yeah. And I I had, I would, there's a little guitar store up the street from where I lived and I took guitar lessons in there. And uh, I I mean, in hindsight, I took guitar lessons from guys who were probably teenagers or a little old, you know, or I don't know, in their early 20s or (laughs) stuff. But, um, and they, you know, and I learned a lot from them and you know, all the pictures up on the wall and, you know, who's Led Zeppelin and who's Pink Floyd. And there was, you know, there was, there were um, breadcrumbs everywhere if you looked. So you went to Franklin and Marshall College and I read that you went there to study philosophy. What was sort of drawing you to, or was it, no, was it anthropology? Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I ended up on an anthropology major, but I did go in as a philosophy major. I, I, you know, you're supposed to tell them what you want to study ahead of time. So I wanted to 
study philosophy. And I took some philosophy classes. I mostly took religious anthropology classes based on um, religious uh, experience around the world, you know, different cultures, comparative religion. Um, So, yeah, and I I changed a couple of of times. I thought I was going to be, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. I don't know. I was the first person in my family to go to college and I, nobody I knew knew anything about going to college or how you did it or so I was sort of the first one and um but I I was interested in philosophy anthropology they're they're awful close you know um uh, world you know thought big thoughts big concepts no right or wrong answers long essays I was into that well, that might be why you ended up a songwriter because I think it's exactly why I ended up a songwriter. <laughs> what else do you do with a religious anthropology uh, background? You could, you know, you go to grad school, you can work for the Peace Corps, you can work for oil companies, it's, you know, you can teach, you know, so, or you do something else more creative. Well, I think that songwriting is the epitome of being able to take a really big concept and boil it down into a few verses, and people come away with. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Hence Bob Dylan. You know, you read all of New York, you know, New York City Library. He read all the New York City Library and then go, you know, and then go write three verses in the truth, three chords in the truth. So So in college, were you playing at bars and and venues? In college, I was. Yeah. In college, um, I joined a blues band. Actually, I went down. They had a local local watering hole. And they were doing an open mic thing. So I went down. I was, I, I was a freshman. I probably wasn't old enough to be in the bar. But um, I went down and I sang um, some Bonnie Raitt songs. And the, the, local, the band that, you know, the, the guys that were in the local blues band, they were like, oh, you got to join the band. This would be great. So I joined the band and... It was all covers. It was all blues. It was mostly, it was all blues. Um, and it was fun. It's called Ruby and the Halogens. But yeah, and I played around town. And then until I graduated, um, I also played, I was busy, you know, in college. I played soccer for the school. And um, anyway, yeah, I didn't, uh, but I sort of made time for all of it. <laughs> Are you still a soccer fan or do your kids play soccer? Um, my daughter, I have a daughter and she is a ballerina. Um, I, I don't play a lot of soccer, although I, I miss it. I miss it a lot. I've always been an athlete of one sort or another. I've sort of replaced it with yoga and, you know, I do weights just to, to kind of stay feeling strong, but I miss soccer and I'm always a soccer fan and I'm so proud of our American women's team, you know, cause it's just, I mean, that's why I stopped playing, I think, my junior year in college because I realized, like, these girls are just, I'm going to get hurt. You know, these girls <laughs> are really, like, they're serious, I'm afraid. So maybe that was the fork in the road. So were you writing music in college as well? Or when did you start writing music yourself? I started writing. Yeah, I did start writing in college um, just because, um, yeah, I started writing in college. I guess the more I played with the band, the more I sort of thought, um, well, I want what I want to say other things, you know, that band wasn't, I wasn't going to stay in that band very long, uh, obviously, but 
um, yeah, the writing sort of took over. And I also, that's really when I got into Bob Dylan. And, and uh, to this day, if I, if, if I hear, uh, if I'm listening to Bob Dylan, I, ha I pick up a pencil or a pen immediately because it, it, it the, you know, everything starts firing in there. I listen to him when I'm writing other songs. So he's a muse of sorts. Of course, everyone, we all are, you know, in awe of Bob Dylan and his writing. Yeah, he's like and a hot spot for your phone, you know? He's like true. the hot He's like the hot spot. And if you, and, and um, so yes, he's, in, you know, obviously I, I'm, I'm, I'm a deep, I'm a deep fan of his. I've been going to see him. I've seen him multiple times a year for the last 20 years. I'm, I'm real good friends with the band now too, but um, he's not wired like other people. He's, he's an antenna all in, in and of himself, you know, and that's, it's, it's endless. It's endless. It's endless. I mean, he made the Western civilization pivot, essentially. You can never underestimate his contribution to, you know, whether he wanted it or not, you know. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's a complicated, he's a complicated person. And, uh, but just, I mean, he, just pure genius. I think a lot of true artists are complicated that's what gives them the ability to produce that kind of art and to be honest in their art because most of us have inhibitions that keep us from being honest in our storytelling or whatever the art is but you look at various centuries and you go back and you had you know a Michelangelo or Leonardo or you you know fast forward and you have all sorts of, of, of folks that in various centuries but they were all pretty complicated people yeah and and Dylan Absolutely. is one of those people who just changed everything. Yeah, well, the world revolves around, you know, like he, yes, absolutely. And all great artists are that way. Bob Marley, um, they transcend, they transcend their circumstance. And, um, and it's like, uh, but they can take it all in. They can still participate in their culture and their society and, you know, maybe, you know, to, to a degree. Um, but it's all, I think being an artist is kind of like having Asperger's really. It's like you're, there's, it's like, there's this big part, the big part, there's a big, a lot of energy that goes to this one part of you. And so these other parts seem to get, um, they're just not as important. You know, you get where, it's just a heightened kind of sensitivity and a redirection of energy. Um, and a lot of people, you know, and, and a lot of people, and if you don't have that sort of burning uh, um, gift or curse, then on some levels, I think it's just easier to kind of, I, I presume it's a little bit easier to kind of go do stuff. <laughs> and, but when you have this other thing that's, ever present you know kind of like a it's a curse and a gift you know uh because it makes you kind of crazy and it makes other it makes it hard for other people sometimes to be around you or and you to be around them and so it takes a long time to kind of and all the things that you don't care about that gets on people's nerves sometimes it's admitting that you have that kind of drive i think 
you know, a lot of times no one wants to admit that they're that driven sometimes. But I think if you're an artist or in other professions too, whatever your profession, but there are people who are very, very driven to make that happen for themselves. And art is the same way. You have to be driven with it. To me, suppressing it is harder than just saying, accepting it and saying, this is it. This is how my life's going to be. And, you know, because everybody would tell you, oh, it's so hard being a musician or you chose such a hard path or, you know, you could have done a lot of things or why didn't you go to law school or, you know, you, could, you know, you're pretty, you're smart. You can go to law school and get married and buy a house and, and all that shit never, pardon me, all that stuff never occurred to me. I just was so, I met Los Lobos the three year after college and I just, I lit up. When I light up, sort of on a chakra level, when I, when all my chakras just go, it, uh, I know that's what I'm supposed to do, you know? I mean, a lot, uh, as long as you're not hurting anybody or, or and, and as long as, you know, if you're a parent, your child is uh, safe and happy and secure then the rest of it's you know i don't know i I think of that as my job to do that and to be that which because i was given permission to do it by people that i saw do it and and i think that by doing it you give others permission to do it i don't think every you know the whole world can't do it It, it's probably or shouldn't do it or won't do it or it's, it's not it's okay you know I'm always so happy when I meet somebody who has like really been consistent in their job and their own in their home. And I watched in and their marriage and all of those things that are so uh, hard for me to keep up with. I'm always so impressed when I see that, you know, so I, I admire it in others. And of course they're, in the reverse, admiring your career. <laughs> so yeah, everyone exactly. wants what they don't have, right? Pretty, pretty um, much, yeah. yeah. So did your career really evolve or was there that moment that was there was a break there for you where you said, wow, I didn't know that I could be a professional musician and now I, now I know it and it's happening? You know, I think I've had a few of those. I think, um, I think the first one, well, I had that first real aha moment when I was 15 I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at the at NASA Coliseum, and um, they they we had great seats. We were right over the stage, and um, you know that was 1988. And uh, Tom Petty was on top of the world, you know. So this was a full Coliseum show, and he did "Don't Come Around Here No More," you know. And they had this uh, treasure chest on the stage and they had a floodlight in the treasure chest. And when they opened the, the, the chest, the floodlight came out and the floodlight hit me. I still get goosebumps when I think about it. And I just thought that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be that guy right there. Not, not him, not him, not him, not him. I'm going to be that guy right there. And then it kind of, it didn't fade, but I didn't know how to do that. And I had to be that guy. So, um, you know, I was finished high school, went to college I did my first real aha moment was I met Los Lobos and I'd made this little cassette tape, one, one recording, five, you know, five songs. And um, in outside, in like, you know, in Pennsylvania where I was going to school. And I, I managed to give it to Margot Timmons from the Cowboy Junkies. And she didn't have much use for it, but her manager picked it up. 
and he called me and it was while the little affair stuff was going on and they were signing girls and acoustic guitars like left and right. And um, he called me and said, I, I think you should move to LA. I'll get you a publishing deal and then we'll try and get you signed. That was, I had no idea how any of that worked. And I just knew that Los Lobos lived in LA and I went, Oh, all right, sure. I'll go to LA. So I went to LA and I got signed. And um, I had to learn how to do all of it, manage my, you know, I managed myself essentially. Um, so, but that was a pretty big aha moment. And then the next really big aha moment was finally started the first record. They said, well, who, you know, producer said, well, who do you want? Who do you want in the band? We got to put a session together. And so I opened up my records and I wanted, I said, this guy, Jim Keltner, is he, is he alive? I want him. And they said, oh, yeah, he's alive, but he won't play with you. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, because why not? Because he was at the concert for Bangladesh. He played Imagine. He, you know, he played Dreamweaver. He played Knocking on Heaven's Door. He's he's a god. And I said, well, gods get paid and I've got a budget. So does he have a phone number? Let's call him. (laughs) (laughs) So we called him and put the session together. And um, it was at uh, Daniel Lenoir's studio uh, in Oxnard, which is where uh, Willie Nelson did Teatro. The place was called Teatro. And it was kind of crazy, amazing place. And um, Jim walked in the door and, and the band, the rest of the band was amazing too. And we got, we got it. We started, we got into it. And, uh, and there was a moment where we were recording in the round, no headphones, everything was live. So there was bleed all over everything. You know, Daniel Lenoir is sort of famous for that sound. He did Wrecking Ball with Emmylou Harris, of course. And, and I was really into that Wrecking Ball record that he'd done. So with Emmy. So anyway, we were doing this recording and we were all in a circle. I was in the middle and I had, Jim was in front of me and the band was around me and nobody was wearing headphones. So it was just live bleed all over everything. We were going to tape. It wasn't digital at that point. And we were going to transfer it eventually, but that was still brand new cutting edge recording stuff. So we were still going to tape. And it was the vibiest thing ever. And I remember there's one little breakdown where it was just vocals and drums. And um, I was, and I was trying so hard because I was so scared and so young and so inexperienced. And I just remember looking up at this breakdown where it's just the drums and just the vocal. And I looked up and I saw Jim watching me and I was watching him because I was watching him so that I didn't screw up. And he was watching me because he's a drummer, because he's a great, you know, and, he, and he's a true drummer. He's a true drummer, and true drummers play to the vocal. Um, and I, it was another one of those aha moments. It was the biggest aha moment where I went, oh, this is how you do it. This is, this is how you make records. And, um, of course, there's lots of other things that go into making records, but that moment uh, was profound to me. So what year did your first album come out and were you ready for what happened after that album came out? Well, it came out in 2002. 
so the way that things worked at major labels back then was, you know, they get new presidents. I survived three presidents before that first record came out. And every time there's a new president, everybody gets fired. They bring in all new guys, you know, so you got then you got to survive all the king's men shifting and who's who and who's in charge of this. And, and I didn't have a manager. And so I was just, you know, Luke Skywalkering myself through that. Just I had no idea. But I survived three um three presidents and um the third one uh finally uh you know kind of got into it um and uh my first tour was with john mellencamp um and uh no i was not ready for that i i was uh had a great band but i really didn't have a lot of live experience and i went from playing molly malone's to you know 40 people to playing at a happy hour to playing in front of 25,000 people in Indianapolis, opening up for John Mellencamp and singing pink houses with him. Um, which that, that singing part is always easy. You know, that's always exciting. I didn't, I didn't, I had to learn how to tour. I had to learn how to make sure you had the merch and call ahead. And, you know, then you, you still got to oversee your tour manager and, and your, it's like, there's a lot to manage, particularly if you didn't, I had to learn and I had to learn it all on the spot while trying to become an artist. So it was, it was overwhelming, but it was great. And I went, you know, I'm not complaining. It was, it was a hell of a way. It was trial by fire. Yeah. It had to be exciting. And I would think there was a little bit of stage fright. I would think if it were me, but maybe that didn't even happen for you. The stage fright's never been, that's never been a thing for me. I immediately feed off of the energy on the stage. It's everything else that takes, you got to do to get to the stage that um, drives me nuts and it's hard and, you know, fills me with anxiety. But once I'm on the stage, it's easy. What did you learn from John Mellencamp? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not much. He didn't talk to me at all. Um, But... Uh, I did get to watch how a, you know, how, what, uh, how a big operation like that works and functions and how uh, all the moving parts work. Um, I guess what I did learn from him was, uh, which I don't know that I've mastered. I also don't know that it's stylistically even possible on a big scale anymore, just musically and public taste and stuff. But, um, a John Mellencamp show is like a Tom Petty show. Every song, every person in every person in, in knows every single word to every song in the entire audience. And so those forms, the forms of those songs, and there's un, there's no mistaking what a well-crafted song sings like and how instantaneously the audience responds to it. And when they can sing it back to you, you know like that it's 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 uh it's hard to forget that feeling it's very very intense so i think that i you know i true his song his song craft is why he was you know is why he uh his song craft was unbeatable you know just like tom petty just hit after hit well written smart earthy you know, really well done. And 
you know it's well done when it connects like that. Well, it must have been a treasure to be able to witness that up close. Not everybody gets that opportunity. No, it was pretty. It was pretty happening. You know, I was like, okay, this this is the big time. You know how sustainable it was. Uh, you know, the, I, you know, it was the end. It was the collapse of the music industry. It was we were on the heels of the collapse of the music industry. So that's a very good topic to sort of bring up because. Uh, your, where your career started was in a whole different industry in the way that it was from a business perspective worked and there wasn't all this sharing and digital and there was no Spotify and everything that is now. No, they all had a gigantic heart attack when Napster came along. You know, Napster just ruined everybody's life. I remember Alanis Morissette made like $30 million with the first MP3 or some, some gigantic sum of money. And all they could, you, you, it was like the Titanic. It was like rats jumping off the Titanic. Just everybody, <laughs> it's over, we're dying. And, you know, it was hard to have any sympathy for them because they were such gluttonous, conniving, horrible <laughs> so do you think do you think that there is more opportunity for musicians now that everything is sort of opened up and you're more in charge of your own destiny or you think it's harder i think there was a give and a take um because you what you what what you gave up what what the industry has given up is the john hammonds the truly great a and r guys a and r people truly great a and r people um people with vision, people who can hear things, people who can spot something ahead of the curve and people who can help develop it, you know, with the right, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of, I had some development, but um, they were, they were, they didn't really know what to do with me, you know, which, you know, that happened to Aretha. It took Aretha, they took them a while to figure out what to do with Aretha. It took them a long time to figure out what to do with a lot of people. Um, but so, there was a, a much longer term vision. I think back then when you had true talent and you had real true A&R people, um, the craft has changed. You know, I don't think the craft necessarily improved by the, uh, now the whole home studio obsession and wave. And now you have to know how to do everything. Um, you have to be an engineer. You have to, you have to be an audio visual engineer as well. You have to be a multimedia artist. You can't just be an artist. And so anytime you have to spread yourself thin like that, I think it, um, you know, something gets lost. Uh, and the idea now that you don't all have to be in the same room, you can record all over the place. I think it, it you know, I think that does take a lot of magic out of it. I think it takes a lot of that transference of energy and soul that happens between a room in a room with live musicians bouncing off one another and being inspired and, and responding and listening to one another. Um, sessions like that are gone, you know, for in large part, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you have a lot more control. You also have a lot more work. It's, it didn't make an artist's life easier. Um, and there's still all these same, there's still gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are never really going to go away, you know? Um, and just, and it's very disorienting. I find the social media numbers to be very disorienting just because something goes viral and it has 10 million hits one day. 
is completely gone mere moments later. So those numbers never feel real to me. They're not nothing sustainable, you know, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, I do see, but so that's, I mean, the industry in that way has changed. Um, obviously, you know, there's always going to be some kind of gatekeeper that's going to be in charge and you're not going to have any control over it. So whether it's now it's, whether it's Spotify or it's, or whoever, you know, and then of course you have Spotify, you have this, this mega monster of a, I think, I think in many ways artists jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire uh, with things like Spotify. Well, you know, it's amazing how quickly media dissipates now. When we were young and you had an iconic album that came out at the beginning of the summer, you spent the entire summer listening to one artist on that album. It was everywhere. You couldn't get it even away from it if you wanted to. Right. It really became a part of you. Right. It really became a part of you and it became a part of society. Almost everybody listened to the same thing. So if you were around at that time, you're listening to the same music. And then now you put out an album and it you know, it comes out and there's a frenzy and then it like it, it goes away so quickly that I talk to a lot of artists who say that it's almost better to put out a single, you know, each you know month for six months and then put out your album because at least you're getting sort of that same hit and frenzy and um, media response over one song that you would have gotten over a, a whole album release and then yeah. you put out the album. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of different strategies to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, this idea that you have to feed the beast content constantly, 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 constantly. That's, um, it's good and bad, but it's unrealistic. It's, uh, it's again, it's unsustainable. Um, particularly if most of what you're doing, you're giving away or there is no financial return on it. And it takes, no matter, you know, good stuff takes time, you know, and uh, I think it'll settle out. You know, I think people will get used to social media, like everything else. Um, You know, the younger generations are going to, you know, what we will find, it'll find a, It'll find its way, you know. I think, you know, one of, we're all going to be telepathic eventually. <laughs> I think we will be. And we're yeah. all going to be our own hotspots. We're going to be our own lithium batteries for everything. It's all going to, you know, like, you know, you can run anything off an orange, you know, or, or a potato. We're the same way. So uh, I do hope for, you know, the various schemes for putting things out and being, you know, quote unquote successful I feel successful I it's not that I've, I haven't given up on on you know the classic definition of success or but I find a lot of happiness in um, just getting away with making it in the first place you know so uh, and it is an all day everyday gig you know so some people, and it just depends on the level of connection that you want with 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 the music. And some people can churn out, you know, whatever 
and they're all right with that, you know. But then, you know, when you want to take your time and do something right, um, one, it costs a lot more, you know, which everybody's always shocked, you know. So it's the same arguments in many ways, you know. Those, the Capitol Records was run by accountants, and these guys would all have such gigantic expense accounts. And it was all getting billed back to me. And then they'd be telling me, well, I made an expensive record because I hired real, you know, I worked, which was so. It has changed. I do think it will find its own level. And I still know a lot of people that just, you still got to put people in a room at some point and, and vibe. Otherwise, there's no fun. You know, that's the. That's the fun of it, you know. That's the we're not all supposed to be in these little cubicles just by ourselves, you know. That's not how inspiration works. Music music has to run on inspiration, you know. I agree. I agree. And speaking of good stuff, let's talk about the album. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. It's a tribute to Waylon Jennings. I wanted to know what your connection is with him and and what gave you the idea to put out this album. Well, I've always loved Waylon. Always. Like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, like they 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 transcend genres, you know, and uh um but I've always loved Waylon uh, since I was a little girl, you know. I mean he is the voice of the Dukes of Hazard, like you can't forget that, you know. Um, so that sort of very rational, like mid, you know, uh warm toned voice you know just kind of is always going to be in my head but um when I I came to I've lived all over the country I've moved around a lot and when I first moved to Nashville a few years ago um you know just taking it as the little anthropologist in me comes out you know it's like I I have my record collection and and that you know in Nashville is uh, you know it was I was new here so um taking it all in and there's a lot going on of course this is the mecca of country music um there's texas country and then there's all other country which is nashville but um and i I, a guy named jerry pentecost who's a great drummer here in nashville had invited me down to sing some songs for a benefit and it was going to be all country and i'd never really played with a straight country band and he said well pick two songs and um so I picked uh, Don't Make My Brown Eyes Blue, the Crystal Gale song, and uh, Amarillo Highway by Terry Allen, um, who I work with. I worked with Terry Allen for the last few years, and he's, you know, he and Guy Clark were best friends, and Terry is one of the greatest living American songwriter treasures. But he gets overlooked because he's also a visual artist, and he, he just doesn't, he never t- toured. You know. Um, but I've been working with him and he's, anyway, I did this event with, uh, uh, Jerry Pentecost and I sang my two songs and I got up there and I realized the band was really young. They were really young steel player, really young guys. And they, but they played those songs deeply and well, and, you know, don't want to make my brown eyes blue, uh, as a singer, that was that was a very exciting song to sing. You know, it's it's just, it's a true ballad, and so anytime a band can really get a ballad right, I get excited. And these guys just really played both those songs well. And we, the Terry Allen song is 
it's great. And um, I walked off stage and I was so impressed with the band. I went, you know, those guys could have, I could have done anything. I'm glad I picked those songs. Man, I could have done anything with that band. And then I went, I could have done Waylon. I could have played some Waylon Jennings songs. And it kind of had never occurred to me to kind of, um, just that's a big it's a jump you know it's it's a it's a commitment and i've never been in a straight country band and to me the way i hear country music is like waylon jennings and or merle haggard and, and or, you know solid solid songs and uh without all the sort of the the glitz and the glamour but i walked off stage and went, you know i could i could just do waylon and that just hit me like a bolt of light and i thought i want to do a waylon jennings record that's i can do it I, I just i had that vision all of a sudden in that moment i went oh this is really possible all right so let's do it you know and um i had hooked up with a company called blue rose um and um they they were going to fund you know some projects so that was the first one I took to him. I said, all right, what, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do this Waylon Jennings. And they went, Waylon Jennings? Why? You know, and I said, because why not? He's the greatest thing ever. And I've never heard a woman do it. It's archetypal male. You know, the machismo is just dripping off of it, you know. Of course. And he's the archetypal yeah, he's Waylon. He's the archetypal outlaw. Um, but as a singer, I didn't think it was good. It, it's one of those things. It's like you, you go to a, I don't know, you just, you know, you can do it. It's just like, oh, I'd never really thought about it. But yeah, I can do that in my sleep. So I just got to get the band right. I got to get the band right. So that was the first thing I did was when, when they said, yeah, okay, well, you know, do you think you can do it affordably? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so my first, I called Kenny Vaughn as a guitar player because I knew the first thing I needed absolutely to get right were the guitars. The guitars had to be right. You know, the instant a Waylon Jennings song comes on the radio, that it's Waylon Jennings. It doesn't sound like anything else. It's a, um, it's a very, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's incredibly creative uh, music. Um, and even though a lot of people claim him as an influence, very few people sound like. Um, and but the anyway, I, I called Kenny and I asked him what he thought about it. And he said he told me a story about the first time he saw Waylon live it was 1973 in a in a supper club in Arizona. And I said, yeah, what was it like? And he said, well, it was a, so it's a supper club. So everybody was they were all, you know, men, men couples it was like couples night. So. The couples were all out and this is their Friday night and they go to the supper club and all everybody's dressed up nice and it's a big night out, you know, going to see Waylon Jennings. Well, when Waylon walked out on the stage, he was his he was so handsome and so full of charisma and just so cool, like Elvis cool, you know, so cool. And. He said that the room split into two sides instantaneously. All the men kind of got their backs up because they realized all the women were no longer looking at them and they were all looking <laughs> at the stage. And I went, that's exactly why I want to do this record. So, and if that's how you feel about him, then all right, we'll get the, you know, I got that. I can get the rest of this right. So, so who collaborated with you then on the album? I know you had some, some other artists that, 
kind of poked their head in and mm-hmm. did a few things. Oh yeah. Once I got the, once we got the basic tracks, um, I had, uh, I asked Jesse Coulter, uh, the minute I finished rec- recording the record, I, w- I, I was nervous. Once I got it done, I thought that was, you know, like that was bold. Um, and really, I just wanted to make sure it was all right with Jesse Coulter, who was his wife, <laughs> his widow. And, um, and I also just wanted to make sure that I, I talked to a lot of women that he knew. Um, I, I called them up and like interviewed them. Said, would you talk to me about him? I kind of just wanted to do my due diligence and make sure there wasn't something I was missing, you know, like, cause when you, when you do a record about somebody, you're celebrating them and it's going to get combed through and, you know, people are going to say, Oh, but that time in 1978, he said something stupid or, you know, or in this day and age, I wanted to, I, I kind of wanted to vet him a little bit more just to make sure I wasn't going to get into uh, that there wasn't going to be, you know, skeletons that I didn't like um, as far as me too is concerned, as far as black lives matter concerned. I was pretty sure that I was in the clear. I really was, <laughs> but, I, I, but I want to double check. So I called his wife <laughs> and I asked her. And um, so I also asked her to sing on the record because she's one of, she's a fantastic singer, of course. Um, next I called uh, Buddy Miller and asked Buddy Miller if he would sing. He sang on two songs. I asked Rodney Crowell, because Rodney wrote uh, Ain't Living Long Like This, and Rodney's one of my mentors and dearest friends. So I asked him to sing on it. Lastly, I asked Lucas Nelson, um, Willie Nelson's son. And I one asked, of my favorites, by the way. I love Lucas. Oh, he's great. He's great. Everybody who touched this record was uh, had a spiritual connection to it. Well, you know, it's it's a really it's a great album, and I listened to it straight through, and um, of course, I knew every song. And what you brought to it was so different and so creative with your vocals. I wasn't sure what that was going to sound like. Like you said, it's a woman singing Waylon Jennings, and uh, and you did it masterfully. I have Thank to say, you. Thank and, you. and beautifully, and it's just a great album. It's super fun. Um, and so everyone should run out and get a copy. Thank or, you. Or down, download it. You know, download it. Right. <laughs> find it where you find it. Yeah, no. Find it where you find it. But we wish you the best with the album, Shannon. And thank uh, you. So great to have you here at Diddy. And um, hope to see you down in Memphis at some point. Oh, me too. I love Memphis. I love Memphis. You know, I lived in North Mississippi for a long time. So uh, Memphis is actually the capital of Mississippi. That's it the way is. I it, it, <laughs> We don't have to tell Jackson. <laughs> no, I know. We could be biased over here. So. Yes, we can make better music too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for uh, stopping by. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Shannon McNally. Don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.